0: good morning church it's good to be together again on a sunday i want to invite you to turn your bibles to philippians chapter one and while you do that i just want to remind you that andrew and i are preaching through philippians uh, whenever we get a chance to preach Uh, and so the last time we looked at philippians was way back in december that was that was the season of coffee shops and people in our homes and being able to travel um, we're no longer in that season, but we're going we're gonna to plug along online and trust that the Lord has something for us from his word this morning. And so, so far in the letter of Philippians, we've seen Paul uh, remind the Philippian church to rejoice in several things. One, he wants them to rejoice in the work that God is doing in them. Secondly, he wants them to rejoice in that every single circumstance— Every single one that they find themselves in, God is using to advance the gospel. And finally, he wants them to rejoice in the reality that for every Christian, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Well, we're looking at chapter 1, verses 27 to chapter 2, verses 4. Um, And I want to ask you a question as you find that. I want to ask you the question, is unity even possible in our world today. Is unity possible? We've been told in this last year that we are going to defeat this virus if we're able uh, to be in this together. It's this idea of of a unified effort. Uh, President Joe Biden, the new president of the United States, is promising unity in the United States. He's going to unify political parties. Uh, we are part of the European Union, uh, and yet there seems to be this new curse word in Europe, Brexit. And sadly, marriages all around us, which are supposed to be unions of two people for life, are failing um, in, in many cultures, most cultures around the world. Is any meaningful unity Possible. Well, Paul calls us to something at the end of chapter 1 that that is pretty amazing, but it's also pretty challenging. And so I'm going to read from verse 27 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear others. Let me just pray for us this morning. Father, we ask that you would show us yourself in your word, that it would not return empty as you have promised, and that your spirit would do a work in our hearts. And we want to be a church. We want to be a body. We want to be a people who are united in the gospel for the sake of Jesus. So help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have two points for you this morning. Uh, The first one quite a bit longer than the second one. And so the first point is we need to stand with each other. And that is what Paul is encouraging us and commanding us to do in this first section that I read. In fact, it's the very first command in this letter. Let your manner of life be worthy of the Gospel. He's commanding the Philippians and us to live a certain way. If you remember, Philippi was a Roman colony, uh, and they had great pride in their success and in their status. And Paul is telling them, do not live worthy of Rome. Live worthy of heaven. While there may be, they might be Roman, uh, that, that's a secondary thing, their primary identity. As believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, their primary identity as citizens of heaven. We too, we must remember that our nationalities are subservient to our identities in Christ. We are not Irish Christians, Brazilian Christians, American Christians, Croatian Christians. We are Christians who happen to be born in Ireland, America, Brazil, Croatia, or wherever you were born. We are not to identify fully and solely by our culture and our nationalities. Yes, yes, we like different foods and we have different accents and we live by different cultural values, but we are citizens of heaven. That is who we are. This world, this world is not my home. America does not have my allegiance. King Jesus should have my allegiance. And his throne is in heaven. It is certainly not in the White House. Where is your allegiance this morning? Brother and sister, is unity possible? Not if we cling to this world and our old allegiances. Should culture be celebrated? Absolutely, yes. Should we all try to be the same? No, it would be a very boring place if we were all the same. Jesus is drawing to himself people from every tribe and every nation because our differences bring him much glory when those differences are united in Jesus. However, those differences don't define us. We are defined as citizens of heaven. We are defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the realities that's a given when it comes to different national cultures coming together is that we will cause each other hurt. Sadly, we will cause each other hurt, even if it's unintentionally. We listen differently, we disagree differently, we process information differently, we will offend each other. Which is why this text right now is so important to us here right now. I did a quick count, and there are at least seven different nationalities in our small group on a Sunday. That's seven! That's, that's beautiful! It's beautiful, but it's also very challenging. It's beautiful because it's, a, it's this display of the gospel, that the gospel crosses cultures, and it brings God so much glory when different people come together. But it's really challenging, too, because inherently we are ethnocentric. That's a big word and a big problem. That means that we think our culture is the best. And so we judge all other cultures based on our cultures. I think that the way Americans do things, is, is, in a certain way, is, is the way. And so when I see it done in another way, I think it's either wrong or it's stupid. When the reality is, it's just, it's just different. It's just different, and so we need to remember that to love people well, to love each other well, we cannot be thinking of how would my culture do this? How did my family do this? How should Christ see us doing it? Society and national culture always require something from us, to live a certain way, to talk a certain way, to function a certain way, How then, how then can our multicultural group be unified? Well, we say no to society. We live as citizens of heaven with a heavenly Christ-centered culture. We stand with each other as citizens of heaven, thinking where our allegiance lies. We also stand with each other as, as a community. Paul wants us to hear how the Philippians need to stand, and so therefore how we need to stand. Look at verse 27 again. He says, I may, That I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This language is really poignant. Standing, one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. Paul is not mincing words here. He wants us to live in community. We're citizens, but we're of heaven, but we're also in community. We are not an island. Brother or sister, you are not an island, and you should never think that somehow we can live the Christian life alone. That is never how God intended it, ever. We are not to be alone. This is one of the main reasons that lockdown has been so challenging. We are a body. A body is meant to function together. A body is supposed to be gathered. Even just think about your physical body. How ridiculous is ridiculous is it to think that your foot or your hand and your eye and your mouth and your heart are all in different places, and somehow it's supposed to function to keep you alive. That is not how the church is designed. And so we, we rejoice that we can do this together this way, but we lament and we grieve because we know that we are supposed to be together. It's impossible to be truly standing firm in the spirit with one mind and one spirit, striving side by side. We can't even be side by side. That's not how it was intended. And so we should miss being together, and we should long to be together, and we should pray to be together. The imagery here that we see is here, it's a battle. We are citizens of heaven, and we're at war, and we're holding a line. There is a great scene in the film Braveheart where the English (coughs) cavalry are charging towards uh, the, the, the Scottish rebels. And the Scots are standing shoulder to shoulder in this line. And and William Wallace, you know, the star of the film there, he's crying out, hold, hold, hold. This is what Paul is telling us to do. Hold the line. Stand side by side in this war. Remember, church, we are at war. What are we at war for? Well, he tells us there in, in verse 27. Look at it. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's the love of God poured out on us in the birth and life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The adoption we have as children of God, that beautiful good news of the gospel, that is what we're striving for. We are not, we are not against individuals. We're warring for the faith of the gospel. We want people to place their faith in Christ. We want them to believe the gospel. We are not against individuals. We are called to stand together in community. We are to be in each other's lives, asking good questions, encouraging with intentionality, practicing hospitality. Don't you miss that? We want to be in each other's homes. And then sometimes admonishing and rebuking each other in love when we need to. Why? We're a family. We are a royal family, and we are united by faith in risen King Jesus. Can there be unity among us? Yes, because the eternal power of the Father sent the Son to die for a people who would be united by the Spirit. (coughs) If the triune God is for our unity, What else do we need? What else do we need? We need to stand together in community. We also need to stand with each other in opposition. That's another reason why he wants us to live as citizens of heaven. We need to stand firm side by side because we don't need to be frightened. Look at verse 28. And not frightened in anything, by your opponents. The world, our flesh, the devil, are all against the faith of the gospel. As we live out our faith as citizens of heaven, there will be, without a shadow of a doubt, opposition. People will not like our parenting. They will not like our priorities. They will not like the joy and peace we might display. Our convictions on the sanctity of life, on fidelity in marriage, and the exclusivity of salvation in Christ alone will bring opposition. The world does not like that. Paul tells us not to fear. And then he gives two results to that opposition. And These are really interesting, but they're also really challenging. Look at the second half of verse 28. I'll read the whole verse again. And not frightened at anything by your opponents, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. First, the opposition is a sign of the destruction of the enemies of God. Is God just? Yes. yes. Those that oppose him then will be destroyed. This is sobering for everyone. Is this, you? is this you this morning? Maybe you're just you're totally against God. You're annoyed and angered by the faithfulness of the Christians around you. Uh, or you're just really frustrated because you see hypocrisy and you think that therefore God is not real or he doesn't want to be in your life. It's a sign of your destruction. The opposition. And the only shield, friend, the only shield that you have Is the blood of Christ. Would you come to him today? Would you come to the one that served you before you were even born? Who died for you before you were even born? When believers are united and stand together with solidarity through opposition, it screams something to all those who are listening. It reminds me. Uh, of, of the 1941 words of the Japanese admiral in World War II after they launched the attack on Pearl Harbor. Tr- tradition has this, <clears throat> this admiral saying, I fear all we have done is awaken a sleeping giant and fill him with a terrible resolve. The Japanese were opposing the Americans in a very deadly way, Pearl Harbor. But there seemed to be this sense that their doom was inevitable i think there is something similar to that going on with the when those that oppose the gospel they see the steadfastness of god's people and they realize it's a losing battle it's a losing battle when all you can do is kill a christian and send them straight to the presence of jesus it is a losing battle because we as we saw as andrew brought out to us last time we looked at philippians to live is christ and to die is gain that's a losing battle to the opposition in 1415 more than 600 years ago when john huss was burning at the stake for holding to the truth of scripture he began singing the psalms on his way to eternity it's hard it's hard in that for the opposition to feel victorious when the person you're burning at the stake is singing their way to heaven the second result of opposition, so the first result is, is it's a sign. <coughs> it's a sign of the destruction of those who oppose the gospel. But the second result of the opposition, it's an it's a affirmation of our salvation. Look at verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. When we persevere, it's a sign to us of our own salvation. Paul says clearly that salvation there is from God. It cannot be shaken because of the one who gives it. As much as as the world tries to shake you and shake you and shake you and want your faith to fail, when you persevere in the face of that persecution and that opposition only proves your faith all the stronger, brother and sister... Suffering shows clearly who is standing for God and who is not. And what is really challenging is that the opposition, the pushback, the shame from the world, the threats, the danger, the constant shaking is actually granted to us as a gift. It is a gift because it confirms our salvation, like we saw in verse 28. But it is also a gift because through our suffering, we are all the more identified with Jesus, the one who endured the ultimate suffering as he bore the Father's wrath on the cross. Look look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you, that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. We identify more with Jesus when we suffer. Christ's suffering was the ultimate redemptive act. It brought us back. It bought us back into the family of God. It secured our citizenship in heaven. And when we suffer, God uses that suffering to mold and to make us more like Jesus. Later in chapter 3, Paul expresses a deep desire to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and to share in his sufferings and to become like him in his death. When we stand side by side, striving together for the faith of the gospel and we see each other suffer for it, we are all the more spurred on towards love and sacrifice and mission. Paul says, to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that, The life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. It has been granted to us to suffer for his sake. Let me be very clear, brother and sister, very clear. God is not the author of our suffering but in this broken world that's rebelling against king jesus there will be suffering it's war and praise be to god that in his power and in his sovereignty he can use our suffering for our good and the good of others we saw this when we studied genesis months and months ago in 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 the last chapter Joseph is speaking to his brothers about all the evil that they did to him. And he says this, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it for good. Can you believe that this morning? Believer, trust that your suffering for Christ is not in vain. How are we to be unified we stand together in suffering, knowing that it is not without purpose. We, we cry and we grieve and that's right and good and we can ask for it to end. But we know it has purpose. We know it has purpose. How is it then? This is, this is, this is standing with each other. But how do we do that? How do we do these things? How do we act like citizens of heaven? How do we stand in opposition? How do we live in community? That's my second point. I'll tell you in just one second. It's one thing. It's one thing for a military line. Think about a military line. It's one thing for them to hold together as soldiers standing side by side with each other. That's one thing. It's a whole other thing when a grenade is tossed at the feet of those in the line and one of those soldiers jumps on top of it. It's one thing to stand side by side. It's another thing to sacrifice for those that you're standing side by side for. Brothers and sisters, we don't only stand with each other. My second point is we stand for each. We stand with each other, but we also stand for each other. Look at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. To stand with and for each other, we must rest with unity in the gospel, encouragement in Christ, comfort of love, participation of the Spirit, affection, sympathy. For our manner of life to be worthy of the gospel, we must treat each other like who we are. And the gist the gist of what Paul is saying to the body here, the body of Christ, are soulmates. Have you ever thought of it that way? Often we think of our soulmate as our spouse, which, is, which in Christ is very true. However, we're all soulmates in Christ. This is the language Paul's using here. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. You maybe think to yourself, wow, Steve. You're my soulmate? That's really disappointing. But yes, my friend, in Christ, we will spend eternity together. We're soulmates. And that's true for the the, the body of Christ across the world and through the ages. We are soulmates. Fighting for the faith requires living like soulmates. In God's design, unity is necessary for the progress of the gospel. If we want friends, neighbors, and families to know Christ, we must strive for our unity. How? Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Walk in humility. Think of others as better than yourself. And here's the key statement. Don't just look out for yourself. But look out for others. We must pray and ask the Spirit to accomplish this work in us. It is supernatural. We cannot just muster up unity. We know this when we look at the world around us and it's in terrible disunity. Yet, we're also called to take a part in bringing that unity. How? Well, ask the question. How can we be serving one another? How can we be praying for each other? What preferences do we give up so that others can thrive? What cultural differences do I lay aside knowing that I am serving the culture of heaven? I am serving Christ and his culture. So often we have this consumer mentality about church. What can the church do for me? What can the church do for my kids? What is it going to give me? That's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. How can we serve the body? How can we love the body? How can we sacrifice for the body? What grenade can I fall on for my brothers and sisters? How can I sacrifice to love you and to love each other? This is exactly what Jesus did. And that's the whole next part of chapter 2, which we won't get to this morning. Jesus served and loved and died for the unlovable. That's you and me. He tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him, in him we can change the world. How is unity possible? Because Jesus is the king of unity. He is eternally united with the Father and the Spirit. The Godhead understands perfectly how to create and sustain unity. Do we believe that? Do we ask for that? Do we sacrificially give of ourselves to see that accomplished? How, how do we do that? We do that because we've seen Jesus do He laid everything aside for you. Out of love, I lay everything aside for those around me. Let's be a church who are constantly dying to self to count others more important than ourselves. Let's be a church who are known far and wide for standing with each other and standing for each other. Let's pray. Father, these are hard things that you call us to, and yet you empower us. You don't, you don't just leave us to try to muddle our way through these things. You empower us. The Lord Jesus died for us. The Spirit indwells your people. And so you have given us power. And so, Father, would we be a church that sacrifices and loves well, that is a city on the hill. To those who are watching, help us, we pray in Jesus' name.